Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And joining me for today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. You know, just uh, another day in our COVID nightmare. So on today's show, for a little bit, we're going to shift our focus to Washington and talk about ongoing discussions around COVID relief, Joe Biden's big $1.9 trillion stimulus proposal that he wants to see the Congress pass and deliver relief to people in Georgia and people in states across the country. That proposal cleared one of its first major hurdles. It got through the U.S. House of Representatives early on Saturday morning. Um, So that debate now shifts to the U.S. Senate. But we're going to talk about how this bill is developed and how it is surprisingly popular, not seeing a lot of resistance, not seeing a lot of hurdles to it. What does that tell us about the political environment facing Democrats as we head yet again towards another election towards 2022? Then we're going to keep our eyes on Washington a little bit longer and talk about federal proposals that would protect people's right to vote and how those might offset some of the restrictive proposals that are surfacing at the state level. We're going to talk about the For the People Act that is focused on a lot of nuts and bolts issues related to election administration. And then we're also going to talk about a bill relating to Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that is named after John Lewis that would restore that key piece of voting rights protection into federal law. And then finally, today, we'll wrap up with a discussion on a bill offered by Republicans in the Georgia State House that it's actually passed through the Georgia State House that would prohibit local governments from basically defunding their police departments. Um, This is a bill sponsored by Houston Gaines, a Republican out of the Athens area. Um, And we're going to talk about not only that legislation, but also what it says about Republicans' focus and uh, what it might say about the way Houston Gaines is trying to rise up in the Republican Party. But Luke, let's start with uh, this COVID relief proposal led by President Biden here. Um, So this is a bill, it's valued at $1.9 trillion. It's the bill we've talked about before that has the $1,400 stimulus checks in it. It has extended unemployment insurance, money for schools to pay for reopening expenses, and plans to address learning loss. It also has billions of dollars for state, local, and tribal governments across the country to address revenue shortfalls and put money into the local COVID response. I mean, it does some other things for people like extending paid leave and extending a child care tax credit. Luke, the thing that I've been most interested in early in the Biden administration is that things seem to be moving pretty smoothly for this bill. It appears to be pretty popular. It's got support from 70% of Americans, and some polls have support from a majority of even Republicans for this plan. Why do you think this bill is so popular? So I, I think this bill is popular for a couple reasons. I, I think the easiest comparison is to the 2009 Recovery Act, which was passed the last time we had a Democrat having to pick up the pieces of a you know failed Republican administration. And the reason why I think this bill is more popular than the Recovery Act was, I think it's primarily because every single American can very clearly see how they are going to benefit from this legislation. With the Recovery Act, while like in the abstract, it's really important that the American economy is doing well, you know, not having, you know, the automobile industry, you know, completely fail and not having all these other, you know, huge problems, it would be pretty easy for a large 
portion of Americans to have looked at that bill and, you know, <laughs> asked, like, what's in it for me? And there wasn't a whole lot of direct aid in there, whereas um, with this bill, there is a lot of direct aid in there. And even if you are, you know, someone who's in an income bracket that you're not going to get the direct stimulus checks, like, you do want to get vaccinated and you want other people to get vaccinated. And, you know, a lot of people have kids and they want those kids to go back to school. And so I think just for all those reasons... Like, it's very, very clear and easy to understand. Like, this bill is focused on getting us out of COVID, and it's going to do a lot of things that are really easy to understand. Like, trying to, you know, salvage the financial sector and mortgage markets is not very easy to understand, even for people who do it for a living. Whereas, like, getting vaccines into arms and reopening schools is really easy to understand. And... Um, but I, I still generally agree with you that this is going pretty smooth and it looks like it's going to pass uh, before long in the Senate. Yeah, I do think one of the biggest things is that there is no inclusion of Wall Street this time. It's pretty clear that the aid is coming to your street and not Wall Street. So that I think makes the argument a lot more direct. But the other thing, the thing that kind of keeps me up at night about this is the looming 2022 midterms. I know we've, we've just started a period of governing and we're already talking about elections, but the parallels between 2009 and 2010 and 21 and 22 and the political environment that may be awaiting Democrats in that election, given how closely divided Congress is now, that election is hugely important to the second two years of, of Joe Biden's first term and to the possibility of us having any sustained period of governance in this country before we go back to divided government and gridlock again. Luke, all of the Democratic House members from the Georgia delegation supported this bill. We talked previously about the laser focus on COVID relief from Senators John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. Do you think that the way we're headed with this bill sets them up for political success in, in 2022 and do you do you have any concerns about a 2010 style shellacking for congressional Democrats? Well, Kyle, I am always worried about getting shellacked um, as a Democrat in the South. It is a uh, natural state of being that you know races you think you should be able to win, you end up losing. Um, but th you know that being said, in the same way that it's not a natural law of the universe that Democrats lose runoffs in Georgia, it's also not a natural law of the universe that the party in power has to have terrible midterms. Now, granted, that is usually what happens. And if I had to put money down, I would guess that's that's probably what will happen this time. But it's not inevitable. And I think that the political situation is very different than it was in 2009 and 2010, while there are some similarities. But I, I think the thing that is setting up the path for potential success for Democrats in 22 is the fact that Republicans are opposing this bill so vehemently and the arguments they are making are not sticking because they are completely divorced from reality because, you know, at least in 2000. Uh, nine, they could and did make arguments about how, you know, this bill was just bailing out Wall Street and it wasn't helping normal people. And, you know, the Tea Party 
mentality, uh, you know, made sense and, you know, rang true. Whereas a lot of the things that they are saying either do not ring true or just pale in comparison to, you know, what's going on. Like, you can scream about how this is going to destroy the deficit, but after, you know, the Trump administration, where they never cared about that issue and the fact that people's, like, personal finances and personal lives have just been devastated by a global pandemic like no one cares about the deficit at a moment like this and like that's just not going to resonate with people and so despite all of that democrats fate is completely tied to something that they have no control over besides passing this bill and that is how successful this bill is or not because you know if we're talking a year from now and the situation has really not improved and you know, we're all still having to be locked in our houses because the vaccines didn't work against a variant or some something goes wrong or the economy doesn't recover in the way that people think it's going to, even if the virus is gone, then Democrats are going to be in serious trouble. And I, I you know, I, I, um, I think of myself as someone who's a decent political strategist. I try to make money doing it, but, uh, I, I, I don't look forward to that reality. I really hope I don't live in that reality because coming up for good arguments for Democrats that like will reign true to people will be incredibly hard. Um, whereas if the bill is successful and the economy is turned around and Republicans did nothing to facilitate that, I think Democrats will have a much stronger argument. And this starts to look like, you know, the midterm uh, the FDR faced where he, you know, Democrats can go out there and quite convincingly say that, look, We've tried to do more for you, but the Republicans are just obstructing us at every turn, and you need to throw out the few that you've left behind and give us some more support so that we can then help you more. Because things are getting better, but we could do more if Democrats were reelected and more Democrats were elected. And I think that will be a very strong argument as long as there's some success being seen and it's clear that the Republicans are just going to say no to everything, uh, which, you know, I feel like in retrospect, it's really obvious, but as you're going through it in nine and 10, as it was happening, it wasn't as obvious that this is what the party was going to do in retrospect. It's super obvious, but at the time it wasn't. Well, yeah, I mean, because when Obama came in to office, his approval ratings were much higher than Joe Biden's are now. And, Interestingly, you know, George Bush's approval ratings as he left office were much lower bottoming out than where Trump bottomed out, despite the last two years of craziness that we've lived through. Um, so it does, you know, the, the hardening of polarization feels a lot more obvious this time than it did in 2009. But the other thing that I think makes me a little more optimistic about how this will play out is the path to recovery does seem pretty clear vaccines seem to be central to the path to recovery and that vaccines widely distributed, effectively distributed are really going to solve a lot of the biggest problems we have in uh, returning to a normal life. And even if the virus still circulates as, you know, on some level similar to the flu, something that requires booster shots, but isn't as, as widespread and debilitating as it is now, that to me feels like a major victory in getting life back to normal. And it's it's not that hard to see how that plays out relative to the complex economic challenges that we faced in 2009, 2010. And the fact that, 
really over a long period of a year leading up to the 2010 midterms, things really didn't get that much better for people. So I think that that is optimistic. The other thing, Luke, though, is for now, we've seen kind of a, there's a bit of a a truce between progressives in the Democratic Party and mainstream Democrats led by President Biden. There's been one little bit of a tussle as it relates to this uh, stimulus bill, and that is the, the minimum wage increase. So the proposal that Democrats put forward in the House the COVID relief proposal, it includes an increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour. The House passed the bill with that minimum wage increase in it. But at the same time that the House passed the bill, word came from the Senate side that the minimum wage increase, as it was written in the House bill, would not pass in the Senate under the types of rules adopted in the Senate that is allowing the Senate to consider this bill and potentially pass it with only Democratic support through this process called reconciliation, complex Senate procedural issues that we don't have to get into, but the effect of which is it both allows Democrats to pass the bill with 50 votes plus Vice President Harris, and it also allows them to punt on the question of the filibuster for now. Some progressives have started to signal their discontent over the minimum wage increase potentially falling out of this bill. House progressives have warned that they may withhold their votes for the stimulus bill if the minimum wage provision does not remain in it. Of course, if the Senate makes any changes to the bill that the House passed, it'll have to come back to the House before it can get to Joe Biden's desk. Luke, there's some frustration, too, that this was a promise that President Biden made in the campaign and some demand for Democrats to fight as hard as possible and leave nothing on the field starting today, starting at the very beginning of the administration. But do you think that having the $15 an hour minimum wage passed specifically in the COVID relief bill is make or break for Democrats? I I don't. And, you know, I say this as someone who uh, has uh, pretty hefty student loans and I'm working a job that I'm currently getting paid less than $15 an hour. So, you know, obviously I understand how vital it is to do that. But at the moment, I think getting this bill out is more vital because the thing is, is that there's a lot of money that needs to be spent that is held up until this bill passes. And so to me, while it is very important that we get the minimum wage increased, I don't think it's worth it at the cost of this legislation because i mean simply just you know everything else we've talked about so far the success of the democratic party of honestly probably american democracy is hinged on the success of this bill and the success of democrats as a whole and i i think there will be other times to fight this fight and we don't have to fight the fight right now um and, and you know the the other frustration that I've seen because the the minimum wage is just is just one example. When people run for office and make a promise, 
they very rarely say, <laughs> I'm going to do all of these things immediately. Joe Biden made a lot of day one promises and, you know, to my remembrance, fulfilled most of them. Um, but, you know, when someone says they're going to fight to raise the minimum wage, that does not mean they're going to do it instantaneously or they're going to do it in the first bill that they put up because that's just not how this stuff works. And so... You know, having everyone just like throw themselves into a frenzy that, you know, they're not taking this chance potentially to raise the minimum wage doesn't mean they're never going to do it. Um, but, you know, again, I, I'm still very understanding of the frustration because it has been so ridiculously long since the minimum wage has been increased. So I, I do truly see both sides of it. Um, but I think for this specific issue, for this bill, I think we just need to get this out the door as quickly as possible without any roadblocks thrown up because there are already so many roadblocks thrown up by the fact that, you know, all the Republicans voted against it. And we really don't have a lot of time to get the country back on track. And while I do think raising the minimum wage would, would help that issue, it, there will be other opportunities to do it in the future. And um, I think it's worth putting up a fight for it but it's not worth tanking the bill, you know, because I'm, I'm definitely not saying people should not say we should be raising the minimum wage. And I think even despite the parliamentarians ruling, there are other inventive parliamentary tactics that exist that, you know, we could come up with. Uh, you know, I've heard uh, the idea of raising the payroll tax to 100%, basically, uh, for any wage that's under um, $15 an hour. And so I'm, I'm sure there's some parliamentary trick that you could come up with, um, and this is stupid. <laughs> I hate that we're having to have this conversation. The Senate has stupid rules, and they should just get rid of the filibuster. But uh, alas, we are here. Um, so you know, the takeaway, the important thing is this: is, this fight will continue even if it is is not achieved at this very moment. Um, but I, I think it is worth um, pushing for e either way, if it's in this bill or it's in a future bill, it's still worth fighting for. And I, I don't think Democrats are going to back away from it, um, forever just because they don't pass it in this bill. Yeah. There's so much more to Joe Biden's agenda, to the agenda of congressional Democrats that I see a lot of commentary on the minimum wage specific to the COVID relief bill that, doesn't specifically assume this, but almost seems to assume that this is the only bill congressional Democrats will do before the midterms next year. Um, and I think that they should realize and do realize that they have a two year window to do as much governing as possible. And if you needed a good reason to eliminate the filibuster, eliminating the filibuster to pass a $15 an hour minimum wage seems like a pretty good argument to make to the American people. And yet now you'll have to figure out how you structure it that gets Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin on board. Um, but there's a whole host of other things, and, and we'll get into it here as we get into our second topic, but there's a whole host of other things on the Democratic agenda that are that can't be passed under these arcane Senate rules regarding the reconciliation process. And yeah. so <laughs> well, those procedural fights are gonna come and maybe putting the minimum wage at the heart of that fight is a smart strategic approach. Yeah. And, and I, I don't disagree uh, though to just, just go right into that transition. I always thought it would be appropriate to get rid of the filibuster past the John uh, Lewis voting rights act. Yeah, no, I think that, and, and let's go ahead and get into what 
that act is and, and what some of the other federal voting rights protections are, throw a $15 minimum wage in there too. Make it all, you know, make it clear that both the ability to participate in democracy and the ability to have a job that doesn't leave you in poverty is key tenets to the democratic agenda. That seems like two very popular issues for Democrats to run on. Um, let's get into some of this federal voting rights protection legislation that's that's also being considered in Congress. So there's two main pieces of federal legislation that are currently up for debate, one called the For the People Act that the House previously passed, the U.S. House previously passed in 2019. Um, this is a bill that deals with a lot of nuts and bolts voting administration procedures. The bill would require states to offer same-day voter registration. It would require at least 15 days of early voting, requires automatic voter registration, requires expanded opportunities to vote by mail, and makes Election Day a federal holiday. It also has other provisions related to election security, campaign finance. Um, It would address gerrymandering by requiring states to use independent districts to redraw their uh, district lines. Um, And it has some stuff on ethics, including requiring the disclosure of tax returns from candidates for president and vice president. That's a lot of nuts and bolts election stuff dealing with administration of elections and some of these other separate but related problems, but basically making democracy work better. Then there's the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which goes directly into the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and specifically Section 5 of that act, which required when states changed their state rules and their local rules around voting, that some states that had a history of discrimination would have those changes, those proposed changes, pre-cleared by the U.S. Department of Justice to ensure that those changes were not discriminatory, were not making it more difficult uh, for racial minorities to select the candidate of their choice. That specific provision was taken out by the Supreme Court in 2013, and this, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, would restore that provision under sort of a more modern formula that meets the scrutiny put forward by the Supreme Court in the 2013 Shelby County case. Luke, thoughts on these bills? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just like, what what can you say? They're really big, they're really great, and they're vital for the survival of the country. Um, I, I really, I am really curious about how this current government will react to the inevitability of Republicans stopping these bills in the Senate. I think, and rightfully so, the administration, congressional leaders are focused on COVID relief, you know, getting us out of this crisis, setting setting the ship straight, all those things. I think that's really, really important because the, you know, fact of the matter is that is what I think the vast majority of Americans need desperately. I mean, you know, people's lives are literally at stake. Um, And I, I, I think... Doing anything but putting that focus to the front would be wrong. And it, you know, Congress, unfortunately, 
is at sometimes like herding cats and they can really only do one big thing at a time. They can have a couple big things percolating, you know, because these bills have been written. They are being discussed and thought about, um, but they can only really be pushing one big thing at a time. And this bill is so big that I think putting it first, focusing on it entirely is right. Um, that being said, though, inevitably these bills are going to come up because inevitably the House will pass them the Senate will have hearings on them, and then the Republicans will filibuster them. They'll just, you know, sl- you know send them an email and say, nope, not going to happen. And I just really wonder what the reaction is going to be from Democrats. Because the thing, the thing is, I really don't think this is going to be easy for either the Democrats that want to put their head in the sand and not think about it, or the Republicans who are going to block it, um, because this is just something that people are watching. I mean, we've been talking about this every time that we bring up voting rights in Georgia. Like, people are paying attention to this issue now in a way that they previously had not done. And I don't think that's going to go away now just because of, you know, Democrats being in control of some things in D.C. Uh, and, And so... To me, I think the Republicans are going to get a lot of pressure, but the Democrats will get even more. And while Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema can say they only get rid of the filibuster in the abstract, I think it's going to be really hard for them when something this vital is on the table and they have the power to get it passed, you know, for them to not to use that power. And, and that's the thing I'm going to be watching because... These bills are just unquestionably important, and it's really clear Republicans are leaving nothing to the imagination as far as how far they will go to eliminate voting rights and to suppress the votes of Democrats and people of color. And I mean, they're just leaving absolutely nothing to the imagination there. And so I I think it will be easier for them to make the decision to get rid of the filibuster and pass these bills. At least I hope it will be because of the fact that the Republicans are leaving nothing on the table as far as their uh, attempts to show the necessity of these bills by the you know, legislation they're trying to pass here in Georgia and elsewhere. Well, it's interesting this the two states that have introduced the most restrictive uh, pieces of legislation since the 2020 election have been Georgia and Arizona, two states that I wonder why (laughs) a little bit surprisingly, Joe Biden won um, states where Republicans still remain in control of state government. And so, yeah, I mean like you hit it right on the head Luke that like, this is not about, you don't have to go back to restrictions from Jim Crow in the fifties and sixties to be warned about what Republicans might do to restrict access to voting. Like, you just have to look in our legislature right now. You just have to look at Arizona right now. And particularly, it seems particularly important, too, that Arizona is one of those states. And Kirsten Cinema, senator from Arizona, does seem to be one of the holdouts on the filibuster. Like, you just have to tell her to look at what's going on in her state capitol to understand the importance of these issues. And that if Democrats value doing anything at all, addressing these issues is sort of the only chance that they have to remain in power after the 2022 midterms. Like House Republicans, uh, 
U.S. House Republicans are pretty confident that they could simply retake the House under similar election results from 2020's House elections, but with maps that they redraw through the redistricting process before the 2022 election, that they don't even have to improve their political standing all that much. They can just pick new voters and shift the voters around, and that'll deliver the House for them. And then that's the end of legislating in Congress for another two years. Um, so I think that that's, that's another thing that, that weighs heavily here, too. Another thing that I think ought to be on the minds of congressional Democrats as they're considering this legislation is the possibility that it's going to get even harder to get relief against bad voting restrictions in the courts. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is currently considering a case um, that would, if the conservative wing of that court rules in favor of the state of Arizona and the arguments that they're making, it would basically make it more difficult for people who've been discriminated against by bad, bad voting policies to get relief in the courts. Um, and Luke, you can get into any of the details that you want on that, but I think that is also a blinking red light that Democrats can't sit and just assume everything will get better because they won some elections. It's pretty clear that things are bound to get worse if they decline to act. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm going to avoid doing the prey of horribles of what the Supreme Court may or may not do, because as conservative as this court is, there have been plenty of times where, you know, the end is nigh, has been proclaimed, and then this court just like does something completely out of left field, uh, quite literally, I guess, uh, since they, you know, tend to not go as hard conservative as you think they would. Um, that being said, though, I'm not, I'm not optimistic for these cases either. Um, I just think it is uh it's really there's a few productive things you can do in in thinking about what the court's going to do here um until after they have done it besides just keep pushing for these bills and keep pushing for democrats to take these issues seriously i mean honestly though i think if the supreme court wants to ensure that democrats get rid of the filibuster all they need to do is go make some really hard right rulings on these cases and then they will force democrats hands to really beef up the uh voting laws and, and i mean the thing is is in the past that is exactly what has happened is the supreme court will overreach and the legislature will be like no 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 that's not what we want and, and so stop trying to do these crazy things and so i mean honestly i, I would not be shocked if that is how this turns out um because it really will be hard to ignore if the court makes that kind of decision and i mean luckily these cases really are not um issues of constitutional law in the same way that um, previous voting rights cases have been it really is more about statutory interpretation at least from what i have read uh, and the you know the way that these laws work and the legislature congress has a lot of power to change those aspects and tell the court no we don't want you to do this crazy rule you just came up with do this thing um like that's pretty easy for for the legislature to do uh, again, if they want to get rid of the filibuster so they can actually pass things. Yeah, Luke, just to, just to clarify a little bit what you're saying, you know, we've been concerned in some contexts 
that Democratic Congress, Democratic president could make changes. This is most commonly considered with a lot of economic questions, healthcare questions, that they could pass laws that then a conservative Supreme Court would turn around and invalidate those laws um, because of how conservatives on the court read the Constitution. I, just to pull out for our listeners what you're saying here, on these specific questions of election administration, it's pretty straightforward when Congress says you have to run an election by this list of procedures, and there's not a lot of room there for the court to come in and say, well, actually, Congress, you don't even have the authority to legislate on that. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, that's the gist. Because, you know, just to very quickly point out like what the uh, John Lewis Voting Advancement Act would do in the Shelby County case, which, you know, people have very rightfully said gutted the Voting Rights Act. It didn't actually weaken any of the powers of the Voting Rights Act. It didn't say that the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional. The thing that it said was that the formula used to pick what states were under the Voting Rights Act jurisdiction was unconstitutional. And so, of course, they could always just go back and say the Voting Rights Act is unconstitutional. But at least as of right now, the only problem was the criteria that states were chosen by. And so, you know, again, like if they pick a new regime that takes into the consideration what Shelby County said you can't do and don't do those things and and uh, do what I think this bill does, uh, which is base the criteria for getting put under the Voting Rights Act in the contemporary actions of the state rather than things they were doing in the 60s, I think that's a lot easier to, you know, meet constitutional muster. Um, this court has not shown an affinity for voting rights issues, though. And so, I, I mean, at the end of the day, what I really think probably will happen here is that they will do what they always do, which is not completely throw it out, but just make it more complex and make it uh, harder for, uh, you know, good, normal human beings to reach the bar uh, that they set and advantage conservatives and republicans uh by making the rules in the specifically weird ways they make it but again these are all things that the uh, legislature could get around if they just decided that they would like to pass bills instead of watching mitch mcconnell burn them in the on the senate floor let's wrap up this topic with a little bit of an update of where voting rights restriction legislation is in the state house and state senate you know we i think we spent all of last week's show talking about this. Um, so good update there on if you're if you're kind of new to this conversation. The one major development to the bills that we discussed last week is that in committee, Republicans did remove the prohibition on Sunday voting from the elections bills that they are considering. I believe this was the bill that was on the House side. Um, but most of the other provisions that we discussed still remain. And the caveat also still remains that any of these ideas, all of these ideas or brand new ideas could get thrown into legislation and conference committee at the very last minute. But a couple of other new bills that have popped up, one of which has already passed and is bound for Governor Kemp's desk, um, deals with both the administration of election via, via local election boards and with some campaign finance issues 
so the state house and state Senate have both passed a bill that would allow Morgan County to remove from its board of elections, the bipartisan group that currently serves in a volunteer role on that board. And instead the people serving on the board of elections would be selected by their majority Republican board of commissioners, county commissioners, the local government officials there. And there's no requirement that it be a bipartisan board. So presumably it would be a board filled with Republicans. That's important because local elections boards decide things like polling place locations, election certifications, Dropbox availability, a lot of the technical details of administration. Um, and we'll put a link in show notes to an article by AJC's Mark Nisi on this issue if you want to learn more about that. But that's another piece of partisan tinkering with elections that has moved forward. And then in a separate but related bill on campaign finance, uh, the state Senate has passed a bill that would create what are known as leadership committees that would basically be another new vehicle for fundraising uh, for the governor, the lieutenant governor, party nominees for both of those positions, and then both Democratic and Republican leaders of the state House and state Senate. Uh, they would be able to get unlimited contributions via these leadership committees and donors, including people like lobbyists or industry officials who have business before the legislature, would be able to donate to these committees during legislative session as a part of influencing outcomes at the legislature that they want to happen. Um, Luke, just to open it up, thoughts from you on either of these proposals? Uh, they're both bad. <laughs> I, I am unsurprised that they are taking things in this direction. Um, the, you know, first the bipartisan committees, I mean, the reason why they are saying they want to get rid of them is because of how much consternation and, you know, fighting there was between them. And it, that, for issues like this, like that is why you have these bipartisan committees so that there is a process to deal with issues that is built into the process rather than being outside the process. Because the thing is, if you take the Democrats off the committee, that doesn't magically make the Democratic complaints go away. All that does is make you have the official organ rubber stamp things that then people will sue you over, that people will, you know, complain about at meetings. And it's not going to create less issues. It's going to create more issues because inevitably what will happen is they will think they're clever and try to get away with something it will be discovered, they will get sued about it, they will have to spend a bunch of money defending themselves, and then the thing that would have happened had they just had Democrats on their their board will happen anyway. And, you know, to me, it, it, it's just so clear and so blatant that this is what they care about, that they're not trying to find ways to make the state better, they're not trying to find ways to convince people to vote for them and their political ideology, they're just trying to find ways to rig the game. And, you know, it's like, it's like a football team that's like, why do we keep losing? We, you know, we keep, we're not spending any time recruiting players and we keep asking the refs to change the rules, but we keep losing and we just don't understand why. If they only played the rules the way we wanted them to, we'd win every game. It's like, well, yeah, of course, that's, that's, <laughs> that's just not how it should work though. 
I think it's pretty transparent to everyone that this is not a great system. Because if you look at the second thing they're doing with the leadership committees, I mean, one, I know before we start recording, Kyle, you're like, I'm amazed they're letting Democrats have these things too. <laughs> Which, you know, part of me is is surprised as well that they, they are doing that. But I, I think what it really comes down to is actually a couple unexpected things because while pretty much everything else we've talked about has been pretty clear how do we screw over democrat bills you know like how do we make it harder for democrats to vote which again as i said many times in the last episode these bills actually just make it harder for everyone to vote not just democrats but i'm not going to go down that tree again um the leadership committee idea actually seems to be addressing a Republican Party problem more than them trying to stop Democrats from voting. And, and really what that is is that the official organs of the party have been so captured by crazy Trump people. I think the you know governor and lieutenant governor and all these other officers of the party who are trying to, you know, rung a party are concerned that these official organs are so captured by people who are insane that they uh, do not want to raise money through those organs and would rather do it through these leadership committees. And I, I can't blame them <laughs> for that impulse. It's also important too, Luke, that this is not, I don't, in my view, at least this is not just Republican officials looking at, for instance, the Georgia GOP and being concerned about how that organization is going to raise money, whether that money raised by that organization will then end up flowing to the campaigns of Governor Kemp and Lieutenant Governor Duncan to reelect them. Remember that Jeff Duncan beat David Schaefer, the chair of the Georgia GOP, beat him in a lieutenant governor's runoff in 2018. But it's also that corporate interests have signaled pretty clearly that they are not comfortable with the election-denying crowd in the Republican Party and uh, and have withheld donations at times, um, particularly in the in the wake of the um, the violence at the Capitol on January sixth, and this could also be a way to bypass the problems with the election as rigged crowd and get corporate money just flowing straight to some of these politicians. You'll remember that Mitch McConnell after he voted to acquit President Trump in the impeachment trial, basically came out and made a speech that said he did it. And the purpose of that speech was to calm the nerves of corporate donors who are going to be filling Republican coffers in advance of the midterms. And so that, I think, is another element, too. Yeah, and I, I totally agree um, that, that that is part of why they're they're looking at this option and i mean to be fair this is something that does exist on the federal level uh so they could not pull this idea completely out of nowhere and the, the the other thing i will say i hope um for for this legislation is i hope that they take the ethics issues into consideration and at the very least you know not that this actually makes any concrete difference but it, it feels better to have a ban on fundraising during session and so I, I think that would be a good thing for them to re-include into this bill and i i hope that they would you know consider doing that um again they can pass wherever they want they have majorities in both houses and they have the governor governor's seat so ultimately it will be what the republicans want to do um the the other thing i will say about this is 
the Republicans are smart in trying to message this as being more transparent. And in some ways it is because they would have to disclose the donors of uh, this organization, uh, these these leadership committees. But there are ways around that um, that are uh, typically used for these dark money groups. And it, it really would not be as transparent as they are putting on. Uh, it to be. And so I, I think on those issues, um, you know, I don't really love this idea, but I, I also don't feel as strongly about it as I do all the other voting restrictions we've been talking about because, um, you know, money in politics is not great, <laughs> uh, but we just have so many <laughs> voting problems in Georgia that it's it's hard to maintain uh, angst and <laughs> rage at all of them. And so, you know, if they pass this one and they don't pass the other ones, I would much rather live in that version of Georgia um, because, unfortunately, the big money situation in the state of Georgia is already so dominant that I honestly don't think this would really make a big difference and it would just be a new place for people to put the, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars they plan on spending uh, for their political influence uh, rather than it opening up some new door to new money because this money is already out there um, and, and being spent on these races. I think it would just be a easier vehicle for them to use. To me, it's frustrating because they're still nursing both sides of their party. The voting restrictions are meant to appeal to all of the insurrectionists, making it more difficult for Democrats to vote. And then these leadership committees create a new vehicle for corporate money um, that allows them to, to mollify that side of their their party. And so well, I think they're well, Kyle, sort of... don't forget they're passing bills that'll make it harder for all Georgians to vote, not just Democrats. But um, that's true. But we know who the target is. Correct. Yes, definitely disproportionately will affect Democrats. They're not trying to make it harder for the insurrectionists to vote. Let's wrap here with a quick discussion on yet another piece of legislation. I I was surprised. I told you, Luke, before we started recording. I don't think I've ever in reading just your run-of-the-mill articles in the AJC about pieces of legislation being considered. I don't think I've seen as many stories that say that this so-and-so bill passed on a party-line vote. We are, in this state, we have a pretty strong history of a lot of bipartisan lawmaking in this state. And this year it feels particularly unusual in that a lot of the bills that are moving forward early in session are ones that are supported only by Republicans and and that Democrats almost universally oppose. One of these bills is House Bill 286, put forward by State Rep. Houston Gaines, a Republican out of the Athens area. And this is legislation that would basically prevent local communities from defunding the police, Um, even though that is not an active discussion that's really, you know, you have real proposals moving forward in any local governments in our state. Uh, But this bill would prevent local governments from reducing police budgets by more than 5% in either a single year period or over a period of 10 years. There are some exceptions to this, like if a giant recession happens and a local government's uh, revenue sources crater. Um, But largely, this appears to be kind of a message bill that combats this perception that Democrats who run some number of cities in our state are eager to rip away all the funding that their local government gives to police departments. 
Uh, Houston Gaines went on Fox News to talk about this piece of legislation. And so this also struck me as uh, yet another one of the relatively high profile legislative proposals that Houston Gaines is on as a part of raising his profile. He's a relatively young uh, Republican lawmaker from Athens. Luke, what did you think of this bill? I mean, it's... (laughs) It's obviously, I mean, it's exactly what you said. It's a message bill, right? And and the thing that is more remarkable to me than what you pointed out, which is there have been few bills that have received substantial coverage uh, that have been bipartisan this year. Because, you know, be clear, like there's tons of bills passing every day that get pretty wide support and have, you know, almost unanimous support from the legislature. Um, And this year, there hasn't been nearly as many big controversial bills that are uh, not explicitly partisan. And I think the reason for that is, one, I think the pandemic has really altered the ability for state reps to mingle and talk and you know do the usual uh, work that they do up at the Capitol. But I think the other reason is, too, and this is something the Republican Party uh, has been suffering from uh, nationally, is... They just don't really have any ideas on how to deal with the global crisis we're in the middle of. And so the only thing they have to lean on are bills like this one. And that's just because they have no way to meet this moment and they're trying to, you know, pass bills as political theater. Um, And ultimately, this is just bad policy. And that's not because I want to defund the police. It's just it's just stupid. It's just stupid to tie the hands of local governments for anything like this. And the thing that is so frustrating to me about this bill specifically is there's this, you know, trend that Republicans have where they love to scream local control, local control, let local governments do what they want unless they're doing something we don't want them to do. And then they will come up with bills like this that are really short-sighted and incredibly restrictive and tie the hands of local governments, which already have pretty small budgets and are really you know, trying hard to meet the needs of their communities. And this is not a solution. This is another way of making it harder for actual solutions to be found because it just ties the hands of um, local governments. The other thing it points out to me is this Republican Party, I think, is particularly ill-equipped to address the issue of police violence, particularly police violence against black people in our state. You know, there is one big piece of bipartisan legislation that is moving forward this session. That is the legislation that would repeal the state's citizens arrest statute. Last year, uh, the legislature also passed a revived hate crimes bill. And those two pieces of legislation have been held up as sort of Georgia's response to racial injustice following um, deaths at the hands of police um, that motivated a big protest movement last summer. And it's notable to me that actually neither of those pieces of legislation deals directly with the issue of police violence against black people. Citizens arrest is about people who are not police. It's about citizens and the hate crime statute Uh, was only passed after it was paired with a provision that would protect law enforcement. And so then really the only policy push that you're seeing out of this Republican Party on 
police violence is to stop movements in local governments that would address this issue in a more substantive way. And some Democratic activists do want to address that issue by reducing funding for local police departments, although they don't actually even seem to have won that many victories within governing officials who make these budgeting decisions because they're, you know, in it's, it's been held up that in Athens and Atlanta, there were both, there were these discussions, but there hasn't been real concrete legislation that actually reduces, uh, significantly reduces funding for police in either of those places. Um, and so it, to me, it just highlights a total inadequacy on addressing that issue, despite the good headlines that Republicans have gotten, on citizens arrest and on the hate crimes bill last year. Yeah. And the thing that's like a through line from everything we've talked about is elections need to have consequences for your democracy to be successful. And, you know, our first topic was really, I mean, at the heart of it, what were we talking about? We were talking about, you know, did it matter <laughs> that we elected John Ossoff and War- Raphael Warnock to the, the Senate? And does it matter if the Democrats are going to be able to pass this big uh, spending bill to save the American, uh, I mean, just save America, basically, you know, like, does it matter? And the well, just to pause on that, Luke, can you imagine, you know, we talked about that bill moving forward pretty smoothly. Can you imagine a divided government trying to address COVID relief in the first few weeks of a Biden administration? Like that is, I think, a a huge example of where elections have had real legitimate positive consequences. Right. And I totally agree. And I do not want to imagine the hypothetical you gave me. So I'm going to choose to ignore it and move on. Um, the, the other thing, you know, I would say too, is like with all these voting restriction bills that the Republicans have been pursuing, like at the heart of it, what their goal is by doing that is they want their governing decisions to have no consequences on them. They want the public to have no ability to check them. And I mean, they're going even further with that than, you know, by pursuing legislation like this, because they're trying to make it so that they can control what happens in offices they don't even hold. Because well, yeah, like was Athens Clark County pursuing a defund the police strategy that was as aggressive as many of the organizers of that movement wanted to be? No, but they were looking into ways of reforming how policing is done in Athens Clark County that this bill will is attempting to preclude them from doing. And I don't think that is fair to the voters of Athens Clark County because they elected you know, these representatives who were not shy about talking about that they care about these issues and would like to address them. And tying the hands of people to do those things, I think is just not good for democracy. Because even if this policy is wrong, and if it would fail, and, you know, Houston deeply believes that it's wrong and thinks it would fail, like, that's not his job as a state representative to do that. Like, people in Clark County should be able to run that experiment and see how it works if they want to. And if it didn't work, if Houston's right about how bad it would be, there would be consequences for it. And then all of those people could get voted out if you had a fair election system. But it, it, the thing that Houston and the Republicans supporting this bill, the thing they're making so incredibly clear is that's not how they want the country to work. They want what they want to happen all the time, no matter what the voters want. And I think that is 
what this bill is trying to that's that's what the takeaway should be from this legislation more than the substance of it itself is the display of their ideology and their worldview which is what we say goes all the time everywhere no matter how unpopular we are and no matter how many votes we get we're in charge forever um and i mean that's what i take from this legislation well and particularly on the question of policing you know you've had this big push regardless of what precise policy solution you land on whether it's significantly reducing funding or reprogramming funding so that more police response comes from non-armed non-violent people um you know, regardless of where you land on that, the other proposal that sort of popped up at the same time, I believe in the state Senate this week, was uh, driver's education training, telling drivers how to interact with police officers when they get stopped and instructing them on what those interactions should be like. And so the message of that bill to me was, in the eyes of the Republicans that back this bill, the thing that needs reformed is the behavior of citizens in police in violent police encounters and not that of police officers, which was just, it's just such a backwards way of looking at, at the problem. But it again underlines for me how ill-equipped these lawmakers are at providing any substantive issues, any substantive solutions um, for police violence that have been, so highlighted over the last year or so. One last little piece of this. It was notable to me, Luke, that uh, Houston Gaines went on Fox News to talk about this bill. Um, It seems like Houston's been in the media quite a lot. He is also the leading face of a proposal from Republicans in the state house to provide paid family leave to state employees. Um, So they're putting him on a lot of high profile pieces of legislation do we think that Houston's going to be uh, sitting in his state house seat for much longer, or do we think he's looking for a higher office to to run for uh, pretty soon? I mean, if you've ever been around me in Clark County and asked me about Houston Gaines, I always say the exact same thing, which is he's being molded by the corporation. Uh, for what I couldn't tell you, um, I, I, you know, he. It's funny because I don't know if Houston wants to do, <laughs> wants to do anything else. I don't even know if he wants to stay in that house seat. I hear a lot of interesting things. I'll put it that way. Um, but I mean, yeah, it seems like he is. He's been given a lot of opportunities by the Republican Party to put him on substantive legislation because, like, I, I guarantee you, Houston did not come up with this defund the police bill i'm i am almost certain that someone handed it to him and it you know it, and i'm sure many other republicans would have loved to be in the sponsor of this bill and go on fox news so that that's the thing i'd say for a starter and then the other thing too is like the family leave bill also is probably not his idea like these are bills that the party let him carry uh to raise his profile and to give him um some you know more legislative clout and i think uh it should be noted that that family bill, the family leave bill is good and we like it. And I, I hope, I hope that it passes. Um, but like the thing that I think they're trying to do there is, as you mentioned on some of these other issues, they're trying to have it both ways with Houston and they're trying to bolster his support because his district 
while not being a blue district by any means, it is at least a couple shades of purple. It is a district that he is capable of losing and has lost before. So I think if, if nothing else, they are trying to shore up uh, his legislative seat and um, you know maybe potentially have him run for something else, a higher office later. He's kind of shut out statewide uh, because as far as I can tell, all those folks are hoping to stay in their positions. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch what, what they do have Houston do in the future. Uh, cause you know, right now it seems like they are trying to put him in a position to run for something later, but there's not a whole lot open for him right now. It also, it seems to me an odd choice. This specific defund the police, uh, opposition legislation seems an odd choice if it requires him to effectively call out the Athens Clark County commission of which he represents part of Clark County. Um, I know it's popular politics among his most conservative supporters, but you got to imagine that he's got a bunch of voters in that he represents in his district that probably also voted for some of the commissioners on the local Athens Clark County commission. You know, it's just surprising that they put him on a bill that required him to call out Athens as opposed to calling out like, savannah or someplace he doesn't even represent i mean um, the the goal of being a republican legislator these days is to own the libs and like what better way to own the libs than to own your own your own constituents well it is uh something that would probably would probably be compelling in a republican primary for some bigger office we shall see um all right i think we've uh covered a lot of ground today so i think we are going to leave that there. Um, we will continue to keep an eye on goings on in the legislature. Um, I believe the calendar through the end of legislative session, I believe has now been passed and session should be over barring any significant delay or change should be over by the end of March. Um, and we have crossover day rapidly approaching. I believe that's on March 8th. So we'll get a good sense of at least some of the bills that are do or die by then, of course, you can put anything you want in a bill at 11.50 on day 40. Nothing's ever dead till Sangi die. <laughs> That's true. All right, y'all. So we're going to leave it there. Luke, thank you as always for joining the podcast. Oh, happy to be here. All right, y'all. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.